This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Hi, it's a pleasure today to introduce to you Peter Orner. Um, Peter was born in Chicago and attended Northwestern University and the University of Michigan. After college, he moved to Washington, D.C., where he worked as a limousine driver and expected to go into politics. But a spell of teaching in Namibia impelled him to become, as he put it, completely immersed in storytelling. So then he uh, received an MFA from the University of Iowa. The fiction and nonfiction Peter's been writing since then has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, Granta, the Paris Review, McSweeney, and numerous other magazines. His stories have been anthologized in Best American Stories and have twice won a Pushcart Prize. He was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship as well as a Lannan Foundation Literary Fellowship. In 2001, he published his first book, Esther Stories, a collection of short stories that move across the United States and among a number of characters. Margot Livesey wrote in the New York Times that, I quote now, Orner sim- doesn't simply bring his characters to life, he gives them souls. He moves seemingly effortlessly between plain speech and more elevated diction, between short, flat sentences and sinuous long ones. Esther Stories was awarded the Rome Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Goldberg Prize for Jewish Fiction, and was a New York Times notable book. In 2006, Peter published a novel, The Second Coming of Mavala Shikongo. The protagonist is an American named Larry Kaplinsky, who is a volunteer teacher at a Catholic school isolated in the Namibian desert. In the short lyrical chapters of the book, we are introduced to the male teachers who are Larry's colleagues, the boys who are his students, and the stark, dry landscape where poverty and violence lurk. When Mavala Shikongo, a young mother and an ex-guerrilla fighter, arrives at the school, her enigmatic beauty and defiance and style set the community abuzz. Larry is infatuated by her, but his affair with her is finally one thread in a much more complex tapestry. A reviewer in the Boston Globe wrote, Orner is after much bigger game here. His central aim is to immerse us in the lazy rhythms and compressed desires of this remote community. The book is properly understood as a series of meditations, brief lyric chapters that celebrate the small moments in which life resides. This is a book unlike any I have ever read, a miraculous feat of empathy that manages to unearth in the unlikeliest of spots the infinite possibilities of the human heart. Last year, Peter published his new novel, Love and Shame and Love. The book follows three generations of a Jewish family in Chicago, We learn about these men and women through the prism of memory, through short fragments that accumulate to form a richly detailed portrait of human beings and their longings, the gritty realities of politics, and the city of Chicago in all its moods. 
the narrative becomes an epic made of small specifics. The Los Angeles Times wrote, Peter Orner has written a magnificent book, magnificent in its unassuming details that nevertheless burst with meaning. Uh, a friend of mine once said that for a writer, a good uh, test of quality is envy. And going by that standard, I'm constantly twitchy when I'm reading Peter's stuff. So uh, please welcome, uh, join me in welcoming Peter Orner. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vikram, for that beautiful introduction. Um, I've never read here before, and uh, so I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, and Beverly, thank you for making me feel so welcome and getting me here. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to read uh, um, a few sections of this new novel. And uh, um, it's a, I guess what I was trying to do, and you know, who knows if you, you never know if you actually accomplish something, that you sort of, and, and usually in my case, it's after the fact. I, I've done something, and then I then I try and figure out what it was that I had been trying to do. And I think what I had been trying to do all along, and I didn't know it, was to try and create um, lives literally on the page through what my characters remembered, and uh, and to try and work um, work from from what uh, one central character is being essentially uh, haunted by the things that he can't stop remembering, much of them useless and random stuff that we just can't get out of our heads, right? So um, not all this stuff is very important. Uh, and uh, it goes through many uh, three generations, as I said, and, and uh, it leaps in time. So I'm just going to throw you in, and it's always hard to read from a novel, and I'm not going to apologize for you not knowing what the hell's going on. I'm just going to hope for the best. So um, at this point in the book, uh, the character name, his name is Popper, Alex Popper. And uh, he is long past, all these things have happened in the past, and he's constructing them through the random things that he remembers. So he's actually a lawyer, and he's sitting at his desk. Uh, uh, he's a criminal lawyer in Chicago, and he's remembering things because he can't keep his mind on what's happening in front of him. And that's because of various things that have happened in his life have sort of damaged and haunted him. So... He's now with his grandfather, and, and his grandfather um, was a suburban, uh, was a bank president, and he's remembering uh, an incident that happened with he and his grandfather when he was about 12. His grandfather took a position in a suburban bank as a vice president. There were many vice presidents, but Seymour insisted he was the true second in command, a heartbeat away from Honcho. And one day, his grandfather took Popper with him to Downers Grove to repossess a car. Seymour was of the opinion that a vice president shouldn't always hide behind the almighty desk, but also must go out among the people. A woman answered the door. She was tall and wore glasses and was holding a piece of toast. Well, hello, she said. Mrs. Charlotte Anders, Popper said. Is this for the Cub Scouts, she said. You're not in uniform. We're from the bank, he said. We're here for your cutlass. Mrs. Anders was sexy in a teacherly Rosalind Carter sort of way. Popper imagined that she'd just come from reading a book and had set the book on the table face down, and now the book was waiting for her like a small house with a small peaked roof. A tall woman, her dress was short, at least it seemed that way to him, and her knees were bare and bunchy. It was late afternoon, August. The mail had come, but she hadn't retrieved it. It was sticking out of the box. She was the kind of person who could wait for days to retrieve the mail. Popper liked that about her. The woman went away for a moment and came back without the toast. There was, a, there was no car in the driveway. 
Your payments, he said, Mrs. Anders. Our records show they're 14 weeks overdue. You seem a bit young, she said. But not too young, his grandfather said. There's nothing in the statute that prohibits minors from repossession cases so long as they, of course, don't drive the vehicle. The woman looked up at the trees. My husband has the car. Popper kept his eyes on her knees. They were not so much fat as bunched up from all that sitting and reading and grading papers and waiting while her students took quizzes, cheated on quizzes. Popper often cheated on quizzes. His grandfather cleared his throat. She stood there, holding open the screen door. Then she looked at the drab, bleached sky and smiled mourfully. Maybe she thought the kid was going to let her off. He felt the heat of his grandfather's breath on his neck. What would Churchill do? We shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire, his grandfather whispered. Mrs. Anders, Popper said, I'm sorry, but we have other cases. Other cars to take away, she said. One van and a boat, actually, he said. My husband's dead, she said, and he took the car with him. Would it be all right, Mrs. Anders, if we had a quick look in your garage? She held her ground. He waited. He'd been trained to wait. Finally, she pulled him inside her house, murmuring, Little banker, come here, little banker. You want there to be an end to moments like this, but they go on. Upon moments like these, time never stops gnawing its little beaver teeth, and the dialogue never stops, even after we stop listening. Now, Popper talks in his head, and even he doesn't listen. He'd gone on a mission with his grandfather to Downers Grove. People have to pay for their cars, Alexander, their boats. If they take out bank loans, they have to pay the bank back. Otherwise, don't you see, all would be anarchy. The entire system would collapse. You think we're talking about just one lady in Downers Grove? I'd love to give her the car. Hell, I'd love to give her a boat too. Why not? But don't you see, capitalism needs broke people. How else would anybody know they were rich? And Miss Charlotte Anders once pulled him inside her house, a house as dark as the inside of a shoe. Or maybe it's only that she pulled him closer, closer, and smothered his head. People's troubles, death, eternal sadness, even love. Yes, love for your sad, reading eyes. He will think of you. So many years later, he will think of you and your eyes tired from reading and the way your body smelled like soap and fresh torn leaves. But first and foremost, above all, business is business. Do what you want with me, Mrs. Charlotte Anders. Haunt me. It won't change the bottom line. No sentimentalists, us. And also, my grandfather and me will be needing the keys to the Oldsmobile. <laughs> so, uh... uh that's a so I'm going to bounce back now. We're going to go into the um, the, the book has uh, three generations of people who screw up love. Um, that's kind of what the book hinges on most. And so I'm going to talk about Popper, the the, the most the youngest generation. And uh, this is uh, the beginning of something. This is a first date in a Chinese restaurant in Ann Arbor, Michigan, circa roughly 1988. Um, if you remember, the, there was a presidential election that year, too. It's called Portrait of the Artist as a Creative Writing Major in the Autumn of Mike Dukakis <laughs> or First Love. Wait, she says. You're a what? It's a new undergraduate major. Weird, she said. You? I'm a philosophy major. Philosophy, he said. Interesting, really, and difficult. Wow, philosophy, wow. 
I've read Kierkegaard. God ordered Abraham to murder his kid, and Abraham said, okay, okay, whatever you say, not a problem. He doesn't even try to get out of it. He didn't run away to Nineveh, which sounds like a pretty fun place to me. That's faith? I mean, at least Jonah gave a defying gave defying a totally unreasonable God a shot. And Kierkegaard says, Abraham's a great man. To me, the guy just sounds like a bad dad. Did I miss something? And she just let his gibberish float there between them without answering. Lunch at a Chinese restaurant on South University. The place was dark, the blinds drawn against the afternoon sun. Above each table, a small round bulb. And Popper thought, each table, its own sad moon. This isn't going very well. She's from Wisconsin. Her name is Catherine, but her father has called her Cat since she was six minutes old. Cat Reuben. I'll never see her again. Who do you read then, she asked. Oh, he said, you know, lately a lot of Ray Carver. Who? Well, people call him a minimalist, but that's really a misnomer. Carver just doesn't use a barrel of words to say something he could say in half a phrase. You know, he's the poet of modern despair. Drunken, laconic husbands, lonely, cheating wives, you know, the gritty truths. He captures them all. Fuck that, she said. Are you related to Karl Popper? I've never heard of him. How many poppers could there be, she said. I'm not sure there needs to be any more, he said. Well, he's a supposedly important philosopher, and she waved a tuffle of rice squeezed between two chopsticks before his eyes. It was Karl Popper who brought scientific rigor to the so-called soft sciences. You have something on your chin, some sauce. Karl Popper said, for example, that astrology was bunk and sociology was even bunkier. Cat licked her finger and reached across the table to his chin. She touched his chin with her licked finger. She touched his chin with her. Not that I've ever read Karl Popper. Nobody reads him anymore. I guess he served his purpose, you know, to bring scientific rigor to whatever, whatever, whatever. Seems kind of obvious to me. Systems need proof. Okay, next. And Cat pressed her chopsticks to her lower lip and watched him watch her. Popper took in this about his distant relation, a kinsman rendered irrelevant, these days unknown even to his own family. And Kierkegaard, he asked? Oh, she said, Kierkegaard's just romantic. That's a different deal altogether. Abraham was prepared to kill Isaac because he loved him and he loved God. And God didn't make him do the deed because he loved Abraham. In Kierkegaard, everybody loves everybody. I'll take Kant. If we're estranged from ourselves, how can we not be estranged from other people, much less love them? Kant says what we we don't know, or wait, maybe that's the existentialist. Popper gripped the side of the table. The entire lunch, he hadn't once used his chopsticks. Sitting there half listening, watching her, her fingers brilliantly, acrobatically tonging those thin little wooden sticks while he shoveled food into his mouth with a common fork like a hayseed. Was it possible to switch to chopsticks now, this late in the game? He opted to stop eating altogether. Is something wrong, she said. No, he shouted. She stood up and stretched, fluttering her arms toward the ceiling. You're done? I think I'm done. He watched her go up to the front and pay the bill for both of them. And on the sidewalk outside, the sun white and bulbous, she said, Did you notice nobody working there was Chinese? A Chinese restaurant should have at least one Chinese person. What are you up to now? What am I up to now? It was the autumn of Mike Dukakis. What could possibly go right? In a month, Popper would cast his first vote in a presidential election. And on the other side of campus, the bells in the tall clock tower ring. The bells ring. So uh, that's their first date. Um, And I'm going to read a a small, uh, brief section that kind of gets into their relationship. And then I'm going to zoom ahead a few hundred pages. 
Um, but because the book messes with time, doesn't necessarily ruin things. An age-old problem. If she chose him, there has to be something wrong with her. So he followed her every Tuesday afternoon for a month, and he'd wait for her after class in Angel Hall and trail behind as she wandered around campus. It made sense at the time. Think about the way people walk when they're with someone and how it cannot be more different than the way we walk alone. Alone, Cat was more timid than he'd expected, less charging around. With him, she walked fast, sometimes stomped, laughed often, commented on everything and everybody. Now those red boots I'm liking. And yet alone, she seemed to blend in on the sidewalk. Suddenly shy, she looked at her feet when she walked. To Popper, these, th- these revelations were thrilling. I'm dead. It's like I'm watching my own non-existence. With me, cat, strong, vivacious, brave. Without me, timorous. And Popper would duck behind bushes and construction equipment and watch her sit against the same tree in the diag, a tree he had no idea she had any relationship with, a tree they'd walked by dozens of times together and she'd never said, here, this tree, this tree means something to me. Let's sit here. And after a while, leaning against the tree, she'd begin picking out a single person to follow with her eyes, a girl on crutches, a white-haired woman with clunky shoes, an angry tomato-faced professor, a fraternity pledge in a coat and tie, carrying an old tire slung over his shoulder, and she'd follow each of them out of her line of sight as if they were heading out to sea, never to be heard of again. Her eyes pinched into a sort of sorrow he'd never seen on her face before. She even mourned the dork with the car tire. It took spying on her a few times to understand that she wasn't watching for herself, meaning the lack of herself and other people. He came to see that she had nothing to do with this at all. It was only about the people she watched until they were gone, how they could just disappear like that. Because people just vanish, around a corner, into a crowd, down the street, across town. Isn't this the kind of death to watch someone out of sight? And... uh, So I'm going to skip way ahead. Uh, They're they're going to graduate. And uh, it's a brief section, then I'll close out with um, another brief section uh, that takes place um, in a motel. They were rewarded Bachelor of Arts degrees of dubious worth in a packed basketball stadium with 1,200 others. Stand up, graduates. Sit down, graduates. Congratulations. And they moved to their own place in Chicago to an apartment in Wicker Park just about the time it was beginning to be ruined by people like them. God, did they hate themselves. There goes the neighborhood. And Cat would put on Curtis Mayfield and waggle around the apartment singing, educated fools from uneducated schools. And she'd say, if people only listened to Curtis Mayfield, if Curtis Mayfield was president or king or secretary general of the UN, then even yuppie wannabe scum like us could be forgiven for triggering higher rents. All their kitchen chairs were unmated. They were proud of this. This is the kind of people we are. One chair Popper found in the jewel parking lot, the red one with the shimmied seat. Another, an old iron patio love seat, he found on another corner. She also liked to collect shadeless lamps. They crowded the apartment like the skeletons of thin dead men, their little bulb heads. She called them her free Giacometti's. Thanksgiving of that year. Popper went down the street to the park and played football with some neighborhood kids. It was tackle, and those local boys merrily whomped his ass. The ground was hard as a parking lot. 
He came home wearing crumbly November dirt, his face bleeding. Cat had brought an enormous turkey at the cat had bought an enormous turkey at the jewel, and it was lying uncooked on the table. She was lying on the floor beside the table, staring at the ceiling. What is basting anyway? She said. <laughs> My head's bleeding, he said. Something tells me you have to cook it first, she said, baste it second, but I really have no idea. It could just as well be the other way around. Cat reached and opened the cabinet door beneath the sink. She pulled out a can of Ajax and held it to the ceiling like an offering. Who the hell was Ajax anyway? A warrior god, he said. And now he's a scouring powder, she said. Is that success? Why don't you call your mother and ask her how to make the turkey, he said. Cat talked to the can of Ajax. You call your mother. My mother's in Tibet or somewhere. I think she and Ralph went to Tibet. Don't you care about what happened to my head? They really whoop it up, those two, don't they? After my dad, wouldn't you? What was so bad about him, she said. Nothing so bad, really, he said, but it was like he never saw us, or he saw us too much. No, we never saw him, but that's because he made himself so hard to see, so we looked right through him. Does this make any sense at all? No, not at all. He, he hit my mother once, he said, or tried to. I can't even remember anymore. There should be more than one word for remember. He hit your mom, she said. We're quiet people, middle-class people. My father ran for office. He's a well-regarded attorney. My mother, for years, was the most popular substitute teacher on the North Shore. So he hit her, Cat said. I won't be taking further questions from the press at this time, Cat Popper said. Well, your dad's alone now, Cat said. Mostly, he said. And the turkey reposed on the kitchen table, pink and dead and huge. And Popper silent, his face bleeding. He looked out the window at the leafless trees, stark and empty, November, always his favorite month, an orphan sort of month, cold, snowless. Whoop, Popper said. Whoop, Cat said. Our supper is very plain, but we are very wonderful, he said. Who said that? A forgotten poet. And Cat, in shorts, in November, lying on her back, her strong, freckle-pale legs. Cat, do you remember how that fat thing sat on the kitchen table through the night, through the weekend into Monday before it turned green. And uh, I'm going to skip ahead again. Uh, I take notes in different books, so I have to switch. Um, and I'll tell you the news. And the news is <laughs> that uh, the cat's pregnant. And they're, uh, they're young. You know, they're 25 at this point. Um, and it, now it's, uh, we've moved into 1995 and, uh, they've, um, they've just visited the Ronald Reagan boyhood home in, uh, Dixon, Illinois. So we'll pick it up there. December of 1995 and Kat read that Ronald Reagan's boyhood home in Dixon had been restored to its original splendor and was now open for pilgrimages. We're not the faithful, Popper said. I'm just thinking maybe his goofy-ass house will explain. Explain what, he said. Who this country is, Cat said. We're all Clinton now. Bill Clinton's this baby's daddy, he said. Let's hope the kid doesn't end up on welfare, she said. He had to sign that bill, he said. You mean he had to sell the poor down the river? It's called politics, Cat. It's beyond revolting, she said. Anyway, poor Dutch has Alzheimer's. Isn't it too poetic, she said? that he's the one who gets to slip away so easily into forgetting. They drove up on Saturday. 
They stopped in Mooseheart, Illinois, where Popper brought a key ring at the Sitco that said, Mooseheart, City of Children. Back in the car, he said, maybe in time all parents become Republicans. This means us. You know, my father, the great Democrat, voted for Reagan the second time around, but part of that was because, because your mom slept with Walter Mondale, Kat said. I told you that? That's a closely held and sacred family secret, he said. Popper, you tell me everything. At the boyhood home, a blue-haired tour guide doubling as the gift shop lady cried in a piercing voice, Welcome, welcome, and when does your little precious arrive? And she showed them sacred artifacts and glass cases, a varsity football helmet, a replica of the hutch where Ronnie raised his rabbits, photographs of his childhood dogs, a story. Once, Ronnie was fined $14.50 for lighting off fireworks, and he thought he could get it off easy because his dad played pinnacle with the chief of police. That chance of that took Ronnie half a summer to pay that off. Now this is the president's room. He shared it with his beloved brother, Neil, also called Moons. Is this where he started a first tier at commies under the bed, Cat asked? Listen, Missy, the woman growled at a much lower register. You don't have to be grateful to him, but you don't have to be an ignoramus either. Her hair wasn't blue. Where did Popper get the idea that it was blue? And hardly pausing for breath, the woman went back up to her gift shop voice. And this watch here is not a replica. This is Ronnie's first Timex. He remained loyal to the brand throughout his entire life. He bought it with his own money in 1929, which, as you know, was an inauspicious, inauspicious year to be buying anything. Yet, Ronnie was ever the optimist. Never once did he believe that tomorrow wouldn't bring more blessings than. And so they bought a coffee cup, two, two T-shirts, eight postcards, a Reagan bobblehead, and promised to return with the baby. And that night, they ate roast beef sandwiches at Arby's and got a room at the Comfort Inn. The gray stucco walls were covered with glazed pebbles. The TV remote control was screwed into the night table. And in the dark, they held each other. It's five degrees outside, Illinois winter. In the room, they couldn't turn down the heat. I feel like a wildebeest, Kat said. You're fine, Popper said. A half hour later, she reached and turned the light on. And then she got up and sat on the other bed and held her stomach in her hands. Popper squinted, blue spots in his eyes. The kid's keeping me up again, she said. What do you think of the name Atla, Popper said. She was Kafka's favorite sister. It's like the kid doesn't want me to sleep, Kat said, ever. She died in Auschwitz, Popper said. Who? Atla Kafka. You want to get high? You want her to have six toes, Kat said. How about if I read, he said. I think she likes Chekhov. All right, Kat said. And he got the book out of his bag and started the next story. It was about a famous professor who, needing to escape the treachery and rigor of St. Petersburg, goes to the country estate of an old friend, the country estate of an old friend whose wife he happens to be speechlessly in love with. As Popper finished the first paragraph, he looked up. Cat was lying on her back, her bare feet sticking out across the abyss between the two beds. He stretched his own bare feet to meet hers, but she recoiled. The water stain looks like Idaho, she said. See the panhandle? Where, he said. In the corner. Aren't you going to go on? And so the old friend drags the professor around the estate to show him the new greenhouses. The professor fidgets. 
He can hardly take it anymore. All he wants is a minute alone with Mayra. The problem is that every time he's able to sneak a private word, Mayra wonders out loud, Don't you find me so terribly dull? I have no interest at all. Now, Miss Mayra, there's something I absolutely must. Hey, Popper, Cat said. Yeah, he said. Your feet. I'm asphyxiating. Wash them, will you? Now? After, she said. And so the drama continued to not unfold. And the professor listens to his old friend describe the new species he's collected. The old friend has long clung to the belief that the professor is the single person in the whole of Russia who can appreciate his passion for rare flora and fauna. Sudden good fortune. The old friend is called away to the village. An incident. A drunken peasant wreaking havoc with someone else's mule. Oh, my dear professor, Dimitri said, I am so sorry. This will only take a bit. And these agitators want land reform. Ha! The door closes. The professor and Mayra alone at last. Again, she protests. Don't you find me so terribly boring? The professor lays his cards on the table. And Mayra swoons and nearly faints in the arms of the dazed professor for whom the feel of her flesh, of her pink and naked arms, is enough to... All right, wash, Cat said. <laughs> what about the consummation, he said. There's not going to be any, she said. You've been reading ahead? No. I just know Mayra's going to be loyal to her husband, even though he's adult, and the professor's going to be loyal to his old friend, even though he wants to murder him. Can't you see where this is going? They're all weak. Every character in the story is weak-willed, except for maybe the housemaid and the gardener. Maids and gardeners are always strong in Russian literature. Maybe you got a fungus, she said. My father used to have that. He kept some kind of powder in his shoe. Popper went to the bathroom and closed the door. He examined his face in the mirror in the murk yellow light. He unwrapped a little white bar of soap and stuck his foot in the sink and scrubbed. He took it out, dried it, stuck the other foot in the sink, when a couple next door began going at it in the shower. Everything shook. They were like a ramming snowplow. The woman began roaring, full mouth roars with an erotic gurgle in her mouth. Yes, my God, yes, Jesus Christ, yes, Mary, Mother of God, yes, yes. Popper considered quickly jerking off, then deciding this was an extremely bad taste, he finished his other foot. <laughs> and he noticed that the two water glasses wore little white hats with perforated edges. A nice touch, he thought. And he filled one up with water and put the hat back on and brought the glass out to Cat. Water, he said. Thanks. You like the little hat? I do, actually, she said. How's it going? She forgot Joseph, Kat said. You know, my stepdad Ralph says the only problem with atheism is that you have no one to yell to when you're out, when you're in the throes. You want me to go on with the story? All right, she said. And so the professor and Mayra's lips are about to meet, and the front door flings open. Dimitri, old friend, the professor says, you're back so soon from the village. And Popper stood on the bed and read the next, last couple of pages, out shouting the couple next door. And Kat squeezed a pillow over her ears and laughed. She laughed. The professor departs in noisy, horse and buggy flourish, Dimitri and Mayra shouting, Don't forget your country friends! Don't forget your country friends! And when it was over, the professor, safely on the road back to St. Petersburg, their neighbors, as if on cue, moved out of the shower to the bed, 
for a more traditional wall-slapping motel romp. But this time, the woman's shouting had died down and been replaced by a keening that was so joyful her noises became agony. Before she was faking, Kat said. Yeah, Popper said. Not anymore. No. And Kat stood up and went to the window and looked out through the parking lot through the veins of ice. She put her hand flat against the glass. What are you thinking? Popper said. Why do you ask me that? She said. Because I want to know. You never want to know. Tell me, he said. She kept her hand against the glass but turned to face him. And he still wishes he could describe her face all these years later. How her eyes always seemed slightly hidden until she laughed. This place, she said. What? I was thinking about this place. The Comfort Inn? Yes. I'm thinking about how I might drive by this place someday and point to it and tell somebody, nobody in particular. Before I knew you, I stayed there once. You see it? That place that looks like it was built in 13 seconds? It's a part of my life. And that person will nod but not really be interested, but say, really? You stayed there, huh? And then that person will ask me if I'm hungry because at that point that person will be hungry and not in the mood for any stories. <laughs> and uh, the scene ends there. And um, the, the book, um, as I said, <clears throat> um, flips around a lot in time. And so the, the, actually the next moment in the book, we actually go back to um, the grandfather in World War II at the moment that World War II ends. Um, I think I was trying to say something about certain dramas of our lives that, you know, <laughs> we have different levels of drama in our lives. And so Popper's drama was in the Comfort Inn and his grandfather's was out there in the war that he missed. Uh, he desperately wanted to fight in World War II and he just got there too late. <laughs> so uh, by the time he got there, the war was over and he didn't fire any shots. Um, so I'll just end. So the, then the, the scene picks up briefly, and I'll just I'll just finish up with this tiny, tiny uh, bit of dialogue, which um, picks up that scene. It's not my hormones, she said. What are you saying then? That motel room, the wet heat, cat's hand melting the window. Don't ask me what I'm thinking if you don't want to know. I don't get it, he said. This isn't anything new, she said. It's that Hansel in your program, he said. Hans. Hans. It's not Hansel. I said it's nobody in particular. I wasn't sure, Popper. From before the baby. From before any idea of the baby, and you know it. Don't pretend this is out of nowhere with your selective memory. You weren't sure? He looked at the terrible, perfect, unstained carpet, and Popper had the feeling, not for the first time, that his life was largely made up of overheard dialogue from the other side of someone else's wall and it made him think of listening to his parents in the kitchen, and it wasn't what they said to each other. It was never what they said, but the indifference which, with they, which they said it and the indifference of the kitchen. All right, he said, I slept with Lindy Schwartz. What? I said I slept with Lindy Schwartz. You did? When? Senior year, when you were in Cincinnati for your aunt's funeral. And your friend in your program, the one from Paraguay with the little glasses? Every time I see her, I want to climb across the table. Sophia Galano? That's right. And also, Popper stopped confessing you, he said. I'm trying to be kind, she said. Don't try and stop me from being decent. There must be a way to do this. Hansel and Gretel, he said. And what, he gets my little piggy too? 
I'm not talking about anybody else. Don't you see it'd be easier to explain if there was? Chekhov doesn't need. Chekhov, he said. She took her hand off the glass and looked at her palm, then pressed it into her stomach. Nobody's getting the piggy. But now, of all times, he said, wouldn't now be better? I suffocate you, he said. That's closer, she said. <laughs> I'll stop there on that cheerful note. So. The book goes on. It survives, survives their breakup. But, uh, um, and uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to talk and answer any questions or any, anything you, you uh, might want to talk about. I'm more than happy to, if, if anything. Um, I suppose in this case, I, you know, I, I was, I, I have nothing against my characters having sex too, but, uh, <laughs> but generally that's not as much fun as having them agonize over other people having sex, <laughs> you know, and so I think, um, I think that was sort of, you know, these guys are breaking up, and so uh, I thought, what, way, what better way to torture them than, than to do that, and I, I find that I, I, um, I find that if we do, put our characters in these kind of rough situations that, you know, something will emerge that's different. And so um, I think I'm always trying to do that. And I, you know, so it wasn't just the, the sex itself, it's just this, that it's so awkward and awful. But I'm sure we've all been there in this kind of situation. <laughs> these motel rooms, they need to have thicker walls. Um, so, anyway. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a collection of stories that that, are, that take place all over all over the place, um, all over the world in some ways. Uh, stories from Africa and um, and Eastern Europe, where I've spent a lot of time. So um, yeah, they're they're different. Every every, I, I personally like stories. I think there's a kind of a lot of pressure these days. If you, you know, okay, if you're going to write a story collection. Let's try and kind of pretend it's like a novel as much as possible. <laughs> um, and I, I really love, you know, the old school uh, story collections that where you turn the page and you can't necessarily figure out who who wrote the the next, the next story. I love that. I think there's a great homogeneity that I think we sometimes run into when we when there's so. So I hope I, I'm I'm trying to write a story collection where things are all different. That's sort of the main. That's sort of the main thing. I tend to, um, I think it's partly because I write by hand, and so um, my hand gets tired, so I don't write that long. You know, I, I, when, when this book came in the mail, uh, it, it looked awfully thick to me. I was horrified. You know, I couldn't believe, um, but because uh, I, I, I like things intense and short, and, you know, I love Emily Dickinson. You know, what she can do in four lines can take your head off, so... Although my favorite books tend to be also um, extremely long books as well, so I don't know what that tells me, except that um, except that uh, my hand sort of tells me when a scene's done, and then I like to run away. But uh, I'm going to write a new book where I'm going to stick around a lot. So, yes. Um, it was mentioned that you went to the University of Michigan. I was wondering about the scene. I think it's the first thing you read about sure. the Chinese restaurant. Uh-huh. 
you know, South State and all that. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I, I, I often run, I, I often think like, I mean, I, I'm not really capable of telling the truth if I wanted to. So I was sort of testing myself to, in, in, in this book to like go back to real memories and then see if they could, if I could track them and make them real. And then what ended up happening was, is I started to make stuff up even more. The more I tried to make it true, the less it true it became. And and I think one of the, you know one of the tricks I try to do is uh, let's let's go back to this place that I that I dearly loved that I haven't actually been back to in many years, and uh, and try and uh, see where that takes me. And so a lot of those places on South University, and other places in, in in Ann Arbor, I I dearly loved. So I just put my characters there and watched them, and then they'd start doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yes. When you write a book that. Uh it depends on the character because there's so many characters in this book and I was sort of you know when I when I was reading tonight I was just trying to keep you on one character so you could follow because I you know I move around a great deal um, so the way I organized this book was that I kept Thinking, well, who am I going to? Who am I? Who's going to remember stuff today? And then I have a, on my garage in San Francisco. I'd have I'd put up the, the I, my handwritten pieces, and then I would sort of figure out sort of how the book was sort of emerging as I as I as the pieces grew, and so it was sort of random in a way, because I, I I guess my whole feeling is is that I you know I walk out of this room. And I'll remember, like, I mean, I've been in here before, years ago, and I'm starting to remember, like, what was I doing in here before? You know, like, I, I'm always, and I know that you guys are like this, too. We're all like this. We, we, we are, I mean, this is, our brains are so fascinating to me that we can live in the present moment and yet have so much intensity of our lives be uh, in the past. And I was desperately trying to show, to, to get that on the paper. You know, I, I was, so, so he is, Popper is just, you know, and other characters, Seymour and 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 Cad and many of the other people in the book are sort of, you know, they just they have their feet in many places, and I was trying to um, to capture that. So, yeah, I think it was it ended up being sort of like it tracked what I was in the mood to talk about that day, you know, and then I put it up and then see, all right, where's Seymour? It's 1977. What's he doing? Is he on the golf course? Is he, you know, or something like that? And then. Uh, he comes back as a ghost on the golf course. So that's why I mentioned it. Um, so there's ghosts. There's all kinds of stuff. And there's a lot of politics, too. So anyway, so, which I didn't read tonight. Yes? Do you write the whole novel by hand, or do you just write your ideas and then type it? Um, I write the whole, the whole novel by hand, and then, and then I'll type stuff up. And then it'll, you know. And then when I type it up, then I'm like, wow, actually, this, this could be a novel. Sure, this is, this is a novel. You know, like, yeah, this is, you know, it's like, but yeah, I, I kind of do it. But I can't, I can't originally write anything until I write it by hand. And I, it's just kind of a weird thing. And then, but yeah, then I put it on, the, then I type it, and then it looks all official. And then it sucks. And then I, sometimes I have to actually rewrite it again off the computer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just keeps me. I, I'm not like an evangel, you know, evangelist of this, you know. Um, but uh, I, I just happen to always done it. It's just a habit. It's uh, like one of my favorite writers of all time, Italo Calvino, loved the computer so much. So I'm like, Calvino loved the computer. How come I don't love the computer? I, so it's, I don't have a, you know what I mean? Yeah, I love the computer. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> I love my computer too in, in a different way. But, uh, but I, I, I can't write, especially fiction. Vikram and I were talking about nonfiction earlier. For some reason, um, nonfiction I can, I can do. I can, I can actually do, like, you know, maybe because emails are not, you know. So anyway. Yeah, but fiction is something I have to go somewhere else, and my hand helps me with that. So, I don't know. Yes, who was her? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you edit by hand as well, or do you edit as you write? Uh, I, uh, both. But I definitely do a lot of editing by hand. I'll print it out, I mean, you know, and then I'll, I'll go through it and tear it apart. And, and I was seeing stuff. Just, unfortunately, it's out in paper. I don't have any, I can't change it now. But there's things I want to change tonight. Uh, you know, lines like, you know, I'm always thinking, like, I didn't need that. You know, um, so yeah, when I so I do a lot of reading out loud, kind of to myself, you know, and then, and then I can hear it. I also read to my dog, and and, and seriously, he, and if I can keep her in the room, it's I know that something's working. <laughs> so um, anyway, so a lot of tricks like that. Yeah, there was another. Yeah. I'm just wondering what kind of paper. What kind of paper? Uh, it varies. Well, it varies between two. This is, I could, this is fascinating, actually, to me. Uh, but blank or boxes. But if you give me a lined paper, I will never write another word as long as I live. So, yeah, no lined paper. I hate lined paper. So, yeah. <laughs> What's that? Um, just whatever one, whatever one I can find on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I lose stuff. Yes? No, you know, it, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, do you find when do you find that out? Was this reading when you found that out, or when does that emerge? Like a friend of yours reads it. I mean, you don't even care which part you're finding. Yeah, I mean, it's like funny what people laugh at at certain times. You know what I mean? It's just, and I think sometimes it depends on how something's read. You know, in, in a particular moment, it's all. I mean, comedy and humor is all timing, and and I'm hoping that when you're quietly reading this alone. That you know that you think it's funny, but that yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I'm not sure I'm going for like out loud laughs because my stuff is, tends to be pretty melancholical, you know. But but yeah, it was nice to hear the laugh because then I realized oh that that sort of connected because yeah because it I mean we've probably all been in that situation where I mean I have where you realize that you're using a fork when other people are are brilliantly using the chopsticks. I just I think it's anyway. Just, <laughs> Like, I'm, I'm also a fan of, of typewriting, uh-huh. so, but I have this problem where it expands in the editing. Like, mm-hmm. it just the word count goes up. Do you, do you, are you able to bring the word count down when you edit and when you go back in, or does it expand? You know, I just, we're all so different. It's fa- I mean, for me, writing is like squeezing blood from a stone, so I... You know, sometimes if I like just that I have a few words there, I keep them just because there's some there. You know, I'm I'm grateful for that, so I don't take it out. But my instinct, and you know, I, I think things. You know, people change things. You know, Chekhov uh, would write very tight stories early on in his career, and then his last works were um, basically 150 page novels. I mean, brilliant, tight. He called them stories. But so I, I think you know, I, I think one thing I try not to do is have any too many tight rules about what I do, but I tend to, at least this year and last year uh, and the year before that, uh, take out. I cut. I look for stuff that I... If I can do it with less words, I will, but that doesn't mean that... Second time around, like, yeah. you write it on the 
yeah. Yeah, but then, then as you say, it does it does fatten up sometimes too. So then you got to make sure that that isn't, you know, proportionally isn't messing stuff up. But yeah, and the rewrite, I often find out what the hell I was trying to do in the first place. Will and so, yeah. Oh no, it's I mean, and probably you know, seventy. I mean, it could be. I, I rewrite. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and. Yeah, I often, you know, you often, I often find that the, the original one was better. You know, I'm, I'm writing a book right now, and I'm going back to, like, the story that I totally wrecked. And then I go back, and, oh, this, you know, when I just didn't, I wasn't trying too hard. I was just, you know, and that's, I think we have to be careful of trying too hard, because I think sometimes we can get stuff better without um, spelling it out. And I, t- I tend on the rewrites to spell it out. So then I go back. But you have to, the first time someone reads it, it has to be like that fresh. So you have to get, you know, that old T.S. Eliot um, thing, objective correlative, right? So. So you're a Saul Bellow fan. What, yes. What's the best thing that you bring to your writing that you've learned from his writing? Oh, my God. Bellow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I, you know, what Bellow, what Bellow, I mean, it's interesting to, for me personally to read Bellow because he's from the same part of, town of Chicago that my grandfather's from, Southside, Garfield Boulevard area. And uh, so I, I can actually sort of see the city of Chicago and, and that era through the eyes of, of somebody who was my grandfather's contemporary. So I could, I could actually kind of see through his, and that's what he, I mean, it's very, it, it's very personal. You know, it, it's bizarre to have a, a real personal connection with, you know, somebody who's that Great, and I think what he's what he what he what he's so good at is his colloquial tone. He just could talk to you on the page, you know. And that's, you know, Bello. You know, when, and at his worst, he's he 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 tells you how smart he is. That's when he's at his worst. But even then, he's interesting. Um, but when he just when he tells you about, you know, characters talking about the old neighborhood and the, his old friends, and there's a wonderful story called Zetland, a character study, which is a great, great story, um, where he's just saying, "Yeah, I knew the guy. We grew up in Chicago together." You know, it's just just wonderful. So he he speaks on the page. That's what I get from him. I mean, in that, you know. So yeah, I'm a I'm a. You know, he wasn't perfect, <laughs> and, and he said some things he shouldn't have said in print and in public. But anyway, we'll leave that as it may be. So, but I always like to say that because he, you know, he he did say some things he shouldn't have said. Like show me the Tolstoy to Zulus. You know, he shouldn't have said that. That was ignorant. Um, so I always, you know. But our heroes can be dented. That's okay. So. We want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.